An Atlantic Southeast Airlines Embraer 120 is on its way to Mississippi when a loud crack is heard. What happened to this twin turboprop airliner that caused disaster? Before we get into our show today, we would like to share with you a new podcast we've found. It's called the Choose Your Struggle podcast, and the host, Jay Schiffman, tells his story and interviews people who have lived through experiences with mental health and substance misuse and recovery. 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined each year. These numbers are shocking and eye-opening for many, us included. The three of us have had some sort of experiences with both mental health and substance misuse, either with ourselves or with our friends and family. We are sure some of you have had experiences of your own around these topics. Jay is trying to end the stigma behind these topics and normalize these difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. These topics need to be talked about, and we hope you will consider listening to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, which can be found on your favorite podcast app now. Again, check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast app now. Happy holidays, everyone! We forgot to record something during this episode, so here's our little holiday spiel. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa! Happy Omisaka, Omisoka, Boxing Day. Happy Winter Solstice. Happy Holidays. <laughs> and all that. Incoming New Year's. Haha, yes. So we just wanted to say a special Happy Holidays to all of the countries we have listeners in, which are 73 this year, which is crazy because last crazy. year it was 25. <laughs> this is insane. So here's the uh, recitation of all of them. The United States. The United Kingdom. Australia. Canada. Singapore. Sweden. Germany. Trinidad and Tobago. Ireland. Denmark. France. Hong Kong. Finland. New Zealand. Barbados. Jersey. Belgium. United Arab Emirates. Spain. South Korea. Latvia. Greenland. Colombia. South Africa. Brazil. Thailand. Nigeria. Bahrain. Mexico. The Netherlands. Norway. Portugal. Syria. Turkey. Puerto Rico, Saudi Arabia, India, Indonesia, Iceland, Nepal, Pakistan, the Philippines, Qatar, Ecuador, Ethiopia, Malaysia, Ukraine, Greece, Algeria, Kuwait, Vietnam, Japan, Russia, Costa Rica, Austria, Egypt, Guyana, Maldives, Romania, Taiwan, Botswana, Eswatini, Kenya, Slovenia, Antigua and Barbuda, Jamaica, Guam, Curaçao, Czech Republic, Italy, Slovakia, Oman, and the Kingdom of Jordan. Thanks to everyone for listening for this past year, and we hope that everyone has a great holiday season and a happy new year. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have Brendan. I introduced you. There, you happy? Uh, it was kind of meh. Okay, next time I'll give it even more. I'm glad to be back. I haven't been invited back since the whole you, last episode I was on. I mean, Bockle. you can literally... Despite that, the fact that I got time. you many more <laughs> Patreon people. <laughs> and if you haven't done that yet, you probably haven't watched, listened to the other episode yet. So uh, we're, just, <laughs> we're, just, we're just waiting for you to... Oh my this God. is yes, awkward. You're, yeah, we're just waiting for you to pay yes. them money. Yes, yes, <laughs> thanks. And if you haven't paid them money yet... He's doing this thing again that <laughs> we didn't ask him to do. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do it less. Okay. Today. Tone it down. <laughs> do you have anything else I could plug? Our listener stories, I guess. So, Brendan soloed. No, no, no. Hey. Congratulations. And he cross-country. I soloed officially today. Not last time was not... Yeah, you're... Official. you're Per the flight school, but legally it was legally, official. Yes, we can talk about that later. Congratulations! And all the craziness that ensued. Oh, today was even a funnier story. Oh boy! Oh boy! Uh, we'll talk about uh, that. Maybe in be post. A post different type of funny, but yeah. Conversation. Yeah. You, can, you can pay the money and go listen to that on Patreon. Yes. <laughs> hey. There you go. That was a good brownie segue. points if you can tally the amount of times Brendan says Patreon in this episode. <laughs> Nothing more than brownie points, though. Patreon. <laughs> all right i got it from here nick what are we covering today how how dare you okay you're taking too long what are we covering today nick all right today we are covering atlantic southeast airlines flight 529 we have covered an atlantic southeast flight before using the same type of airplane an embraer brasilia or an mb 120 
look back at episode numero five. Yes, episode number five is actually our first recommendation. Speaking of which, thank you to... Thank you to our patron, Jacob, for recommending this flight. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. So this happened on August 21st of 1995. This was an Embraer 120 with the tail number November 256, Alpha Sierra. It was flying from Atlanta to Gulfport, Mississippi. Mrs. Pippi. Mrs. Pippi. The captain for our flight today is Captain Edwin, or Ed, Ganaway. He was 45 years old. He had 9,876 hours total, of which 7,374 hours were on the Embraer. So most of his time. A very, very large majority. The first officer was Matthew, or Matt, Warmerdam. He was 28 years old. He had 1,193 hours total, of which 363 were on the type. This was before the 1,500-hour requirement, so he only had less than 1,200 hours at the time of this accident. This flight had 26 passengers and 3 crew. Before all that, the flight crew began their day, beginning a two-day trip earlier that day, starting in Macon, Georgia, where they picked up the accident airplane. They flew from Macon to Atlanta. When they arrived in Atlanta, the captain remained on the plane to get the IFR clearance for the next flight. Well, the first officer left the plane, but remained in the immediate vicinity. That's all he wrote in the report, and the only reason I left that in there is all I can picture is him leaving, having madly to go to the bathroom or something. <laughs> I can see that. All they said is he stayed in the immediate area. He probably was doing like a pre-flight. He was probably doing a walk around yeah. or something, yeah, with the airplane. That's all I can think. Or frantically needed to pee. <laughs> I mean, they have a bathroom on the airplane, but yes. Or wanted to get some Starbucks. Yes. Something hey, like that. Caffeine is important. Totally. The IFR clearance had the flight using the Atlanta 4 departure, and the planned cruising altitude was to fly at flight level 240, or 24,000 feet, for a 1-hour and 26-minute flight to Gulfport. The load manifest showed the 26 passengers, 3 crew, 724 pounds of cargo, and 2,700 pounds of fuel that were to be loaded on the airplane. The airplane fired up and taxied out of the ramp area at 12.10 p.m. The flight took off at 12.23 p.m., so a nice midday flight. The plane climbed out normally. The flight quickly entered the clouds, which were expected to be present for much of the flight. At 12.36 p.m., the first officer reported to the West Departure Controller for Atlanta Center that they were crossing through 13,000 feet. At 12.42 p.m., after several back-to-back -back climb clearances from the air traffic controller, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to and maintain their cruising altitude of flight level 240. And the flight crew acknowledged this given instruction. About one and a half minutes later, as the plane was climbing through 18,100 feet at 160 knots, several large bangs occurred, and immediately the torque on the left engine decreased to zero. So it was not producing any torque whatsoever. We're talking about a twin turboprop, so this is a prop-driven airplane that requires a lot of torque. I was going to ask. Yes. Small airplane. The airplane immediately began rolling to the left and pitching down all on its own. The autopilot had disengaged and alarms were sounding in the cockpit as nearly everything on the left side engine had failed. The captain immediately tried to counteract the roll and pitch by counter-controlling, but the airplane pitch still decreased down to 9 degrees nose low, and the descent rate progressed down to 5,500 feet per minute, which is pretty frickin' quick. That's a heavy descent. The captain stated, quote, I can't hold this thing, and then he asked the first officer, Help me hold it! Some of the passengers seated on the left side saw that the left engine was mangled and the prop blades were pressed against the wing, pointing to the left rather than straight forward. So the engine had canted to the left. At 12.44 p.m. and 26 seconds, the first officer declared an emergency to air traffic control, stating, quote, We've had an engine failure, end quote. That's all he said to them. The air traffic controller cleared the plane to turn around and head direct back to Atlanta. The airplane's pitch and roll continuously changed as the flight crew kept fighting with the controls. At 12.45 p.m. and 46 seconds, the first officer informed the lone flight attendant on board, Robin Fetch, that they were going to return to Atlanta and to brief the passengers for an emergency landing. Just before that, she had gone back to see what the loud noise was through the passenger windows, and she saw that the engine was heavily damaged. She began closing the passenger windows on the left side to hide the view, and telling the passengers that they would be okay because the airplane was designed to fly with a single engine. Which is true. Most this is planes true. are 
as most planes that have more than one engine, <laughs> I should yes. say, are meant to fly without an engine. This is true. She was attempting to comfort the passengers. One passenger, however, did not want his window closed because he would rather see the view outside in case things went wrong. Basically, he said, well, if this is how my life was going to end, I would rather be able to see the world outside for one last time than not. Nothing like quickly watching the ground approach. Approach. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I would understand that. I wouldn't want the last thing I would see is the inside of a passenger cabin. Yes. I mean, it's it's morbid, but also and I kind of get it. He was admittedly already a nervous flyer before even getting on the plane. Yes. Uh, his name was Chuck Fisterer. Huh. Pfisterer? It starts with a P. Yeah, P. Those silent P's. At 12.46 p.m. in 13 seconds, after a brief discussion between the flight crew about how far they could make it with the state of the airplane, the first officer stated to the air traffic controller, quote, We're going to need to keep descending. We need an airport quick and uh, roll the trucks and everything for us, end quote. However, the air traffic controller did not contact the emergency crews. What? Yes. Why not? He was overwhelmed. The air traffic controller gave Is he the, the only one there? Dude, I don't know. <laughs> they didn't clarify that part. All they said is that he didn't make any effort to contact emergency. Well, you know, at that point, vehicles. he's probably trying to figure out which airport is best. And while dealing with all the workload he currently has. Yes. And to, mind you, this is also a center controller who doesn't handle. Right. Oh, that's fair. The emergency stuff at these airports. You have to uh, tell another controller to do that. Yes. But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, cool. The air traffic controller gave the flight crew heading info for CTJ, which was West Georgia Regional at Carrollton, Georgia. Small town. The flight crew continued to fight the controls as they also adjusted the power to the right engine, attempting to stabilize the airplane descent rate to between 1,000 to 2,000 foot per minute descent and the airspeed between 153 to 175 knots. So just basically trying to get the airplane into a stable descent. Ish. Ish. As the airplane descended through 4,500 feet, the air traffic controller lost the flight's transponder code on his radar. At 1250, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact an Atlanta approach controller as they were the controllers responsible for the arrivals and departures at CTJ, or West Georgia Regional. They contacted the Atlanta approach controller and requested the localizer frequency and the vectors to the airport also informing this controller that they had declared an emergency. This air traffic controller, however, also did not contact the emergency crews to inform them to mobilize. Okay, that's a bit of a problem. The yes. first the first person, I can kind of understand. If mm -hmm. they're not the ones usually doing the emergency, like contacting emergency people, mm -hmm. that I get. This, that's just not okay. That's yeah. either bad training, you're tired, something, but that's not okay. Was this West Georgia Regional Airport a towered airport at the time? You know, I don't know. It didn't clarify that, and it doesn't say they ever talked to tower. Okay, because usually at a non-towered airport, there's nothing you can really do. Right. You can't roll any trucks, because there's no one to... From my understanding, there were emergency vehicles at this airport, mm. so I think they were towered. But it never clarified if they contacted the tower directly. Not within the report, anyways. Gotcha. The controller gave the flight the localizer frequency. The flight crew then requested vectors for a visual approach. The air traffic controller then verified with the flight what the altitude of the airplane was and that they were within the VFR conditions and then told them to fly 040 and that the airport was about 10 o'clock and 6 miles away. So at their 10 o'clock from the nose, 6 miles away. The flight had just finally popped out of the clouds at a very low altitude just before that call, so they were able to verify that they were wanting a visual approach because they could see. That being said, they were at a very low altitude, so they could also see there wasn't much. At 12.51 p.m. and 47 seconds, they acknowledged the heading given by the air traffic controller, and this was the last call that the flight made to air traffic control. During this last communication, the airspeed steadily dropped from 168 knots to 120 knots. The landing gear and the flaps were still retracted. As they were nearing the airport, it became evident to the crew that they weren't going to make it all the way there. The captain elected not to use the landing gear or flaps as they were going to have to land in a field. This would hopefully smooth out the impact rather than catching on the ground with landing gear and flaps. In the final moments of the flight, 
the, the flight attendant told the passengers to take brace positions, which she had one by one gone through the cabin and helped them understand how to do. And she realized from looking out of the passenger windows that the ground was much closer than she thought. And she also noted that it didn't like, look like they were in Atlanta, because all she saw were fields. She had only spoken with the crew the one time that they had informed her that they would be returning to Atlanta. She was not informed about the change of plans after that. She rushed back to her seat, yelling to take the brace positions, understanding that the plane was going down. She narrowly had enough time to strap herself into her own jump seat and take a brace position before the inevitable. Less than a minute after the last communication with the air traffic controllers, the airplane struck the ground in an open field a few miles short of West Georgia Regional. The airplane had impacted heavily and skidded before breaking up and coming to rest. When the airplane did come to rest, all people on board realized that they had survived, though some were badly injured. Some people immediately began getting up and started heading for the large openings in the fuselage where the airplane had broken apart. Including Chuck. Including our friend Chuck, yes. Several of the passengers managed to get out and run away from the fuselage just before some leaking fuel came in contact with a shorting wire on one of the wings, igniting a large fire on one of the wings. The fire quickly began spreading to the fuselage and the grassy area around it. Smoke was filling all parts of the airplane, including the separated cockpit section. The flight crew were still trapped in the cockpit. Some passengers were struggling to find a way out with the fire and all the smoke, some having to jump through the opening through the flames, lighting their clothes on fire. They would drop and roll and try to put the flames out, but many were badly, very badly injured by the fire. There are a lot more graphic details in an episode we watched about this that we won't state on this podcast. The first officer grabbed the escape axe and began swinging at his right side cockpit window, but his swing was weak and limited. He managed to create a small hole in the window. The captain was badly injured and not able to help with him. He was also unconscious. Yeah, he was also unconscious, basically. A nearby passenger that had escaped early saw the first officer trying to escape the cockpit, which was filling with smoke. He ran over and grabbed the axe from the first officer through the small hole and began hacking away at the window from the outside pausing occasionally, allowing the first officer to take a breath of fresh air from that hole in the window. He kept swinging until the axe suddenly broke. He ran away briefly, unsure of what to do, but returned with another object and continued hitting the window until the first officer was finally freed and able to escape. The captain, however, was too incapacitated, and he was too difficult to get to for anybody to save him. He eventually succumbed to the injuries and smoke. Seven other passengers perished from smoke inhalation, and the inability to escape the burning airplane. Another passenger perished four months after the accident as a result of her injuries. In all, eight passengers and one crew, the captain, passed away. Two crew and ten passengers were seriously injured, and eight passengers were minorly injured. The emergency crews got there in a timely manner, even though the emergency crews were not informed to mobilize when the air traffic controller was initially informed of the emergency. The airplane left an 850-foot wreckage trail. Numerous trees were sheared at the tops prior to the area in the field where the airplane impacted. The airplane had separated into three large sections. Two people in a nearby house had seen the airplane coming and took cover, but then went to help the passengers once the airplane had come to rest. This was a pretty bad accident. I mean... The, man, the fact that they all managed to survive kind of proved that the captain knew what he was doing and putting the airplane down where he did, but unfortunately they couldn't help the fire. And that's what made this so much worse. This accident actually wouldn't have been as deadly had it not been for the fire. Right, I was about to say, like, if they would have just crashed. Right. That's Everyone one thing. probably would have survived. Right. Also... I had to go and blow up. Yep. <laughs> Good on the people who went back to help. Like that passenger that went back to help the first officer when he f when he realized that he was yeah. trying to get out. It's not easy, by the way, to break those windows. No, it's not. Because they're supposed to be, like, really thick. And right. basically close to indestructible because you don't want those coming off. Right. Because... And we'll eventually cover this at some point. You'll get sucked out of the plane <laughs> yeah. if you're high enough, right? So the part of the reason 
why it was so hard for them to break it is because those windows are not meant to be broken. Also, right. they had a really crappy axe to work with. Yeah, that, yes. that's a little weird that a fire axe broke. Well, we'll talk about that later. For the record, that passenger's name that helped him get out was David McCorkle. Good job, David. Nice not sure name. if you're listening, but if you are, good job. Good job. I, I, I added more story pieces to this because this was a heavy story anyways. And like you said, the Air Crash Investigations episode that we watched was a lot more graphic. Yeah, this was a weird episode. This was really early in Air Crash Investigations history, and they didn't do things like they do now. The entire crash sequence and evacuation took up the majority of the episode, and the analysis was like four minutes. If that. I mean, this, this was like 45 minutes of the episode was just a reenactment of the entire incident. I mean, it was really rough. This investigation was performed by the... NTSB. And they didn't have a lot of rabbit holes to jump down this time. Rather, they had witnesses who were alive and saw the failure of the engine and were able to testify as such. Additionally, this is not the first time that we covered an Atlantic Southeast plane that went down in Georgia, specifically. Refer to episode 5... That was due to a malfunction of the propeller control unit. In just the year before this accident, there were two previous propeller blade failure of the same type of propeller blades, and that knowledge helped the NTSB narrow in on what happened on the left engine. They found one of the propellers to be missing and was recovered about a month later at a farm 35 miles west of the crash site. So one of the blades just fell off? Broke. Broke? broke and that it had a smooth crack surface for a small ways before becoming jagged if you've been here before you know what that means fatigue (laughs) yep a fatigue crack fatigue crack now let's talk a little bit about how these propellers were designed this composite propeller was made by hamilton standard a familiar company if you listen to episode five and it was made with an aluminum alloy spar to carry the load, and the blade itself was a fiberglass epoxy composite with foam spacers all adhered to the spar. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a good propeller right there. <laughs> Layered propeller. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't a very good propeller, actually. Turns out. <laughs> the idea is nice. Yeah, the idea is nice. For weight reduction, as well as balance, a conical hole, or a taper bore, it was formed in the center of the spar. To maintain perfect balance, maintenance would have to add lead wool inside the bore, which would be kept in place with a cork. But the use of cork was deemed unnecessary and was in the process of being phased out, which I'll come back to in a second. The fracture crack had originated at a corrosion pit on the taper bore surface, propagating little bits at a time until it reached the critical length for fracture. In fact, there were beach marks present on the cracked surface, which you can see with a naked eye. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. The rings. Yeah. And that's even like crappy quality Xeroxed version mm-hmm. yeah. the original photo. <laughs> I've talked about them before. Basically, they're like tree rings where you can see the changes in loading over time as the crack propagated. The crack had actually progressed through about 75% of the cross section of the spar before overload stresses caused the fracture. Now, I spoke of the two previous ac- incidents, not accidents, in the year prior to this crash. Both of them landed, for the record. No one died. One was in Brazil and had this exact same type of propeller blade, and the other was in Canada with a similar model propeller blade. It was found that both had failed because of the cork that was used to keep the lead wool in place, as I had mentioned earlier. In order to keep the cork in place, maintenance procedures had to soak the cork in bleach. This cork would then trap moisture inside with the lead wool, and that moisture would react with the chlorine in the bleach and would corrode the inner surface of the bore. The symptom of this would be a layer of oxide, which is a byproduct of corrosion, so like rust and on iron, that's the oxide of iron. So in this instance, you would have aluminum oxide, and these oxide deposits held levels of chlorine. Investigators examined Flight 529's propeller blades bore surface and found the same oxide deposits with these same chlorine levels. Now, because these other incidents had transpired in the previous year, this 
particular propeller blade on the accident flight was evaluated by airline maintenance and did not pass an ultrasonic inspection, so it was one of the 490 total rejected blades. It was removed in May 1994 and was sent to Hamilton Standard to remove the cork and evaluate the bore surface to prevent further corrosion and extend the life of the blade. None of the returned blades showed any cracking, and 13% of them showed corrosion. None of these corroded blades were returned to service, but were later used for further analysis and testing. The initial repair procedure, known as PS960, is summarized as follows. Step 1. Visually inspect the bore for mechanical damage. Step 2. Blend the mechanical damage, which is kind of another phrase for grinding it or sanding it down. Yeah, like And then polishing it. it. They grind the inside of the bore. Inspect with a bore scope and surface finish. Perform another ultrasonic inspection and then stencil in the phrase PS960 and coat with a finishing coat, which then cures for 24 hours. This process was amended to PS960A when they figured out the whole bleach, cork equals chlorine equals corrosion situation, and they added the steps to remove the cork and add a sealant instead. Now, here's what actually happened to the accident blade. It was removed and sent to Hamilton Standard on May 19, 1994. Hamilton Standard performed an ultrasonic inspection on June 7th, confirmed that it failed the ultrasonic inspection, and then removed the lead wool and visually inspected the bore with a bore scope. The technician recorded, quote, no visible faults, which was spelled without a U. So, great spelling. Fouts. Yep. Fouts. <laughs> no visible faults found, blend rejected area. So, he sanded and or ground down that area that failed the ultrasonic test, even though the procedure said only to blend areas that failed the visual test. It was at this point that investigators wrote, quote, P.S., this is where Miranda will get mad. The technician, who was not an FAA-certificated mechanic, stated that he was permitted to perform and sign off the work that he was qualified to perform. The technician, as an employee of Hamilton Standard's Rock Hill Blade Repair Facility, which is an FAA-certificated repair station under Part 145, is not required to be a certificated mechanic to work on propeller blades. End quote. What? Legally, that is true. Okay, so it's an FAA-certified facility, but you don't have to be FAA-certified to actually work in the FAA-certified facility. Correct. Because they're only working on one specific part. Being a mechanic for an entire airframe and engine like that, that requires you to have much broader knowledge than just working on one piece. That's all they do. Additionally, though, his work was supposed to be inspected by someone who is FAA certificated. And let me guess. It wasn't. The shop traveler form, you know, the official documentation regarding the state of the propeller, was... Initialed and dated by the technician, but the space for signature from a second inspection by an FAA-certificated repairman was blank. Okay, so how did it even get back on the plane then? Like, I'm confused. If all steps are not carried out, why would you just send it off? I don't know, but that's literally my next point is, after finishing some touch-ups at their other facility, Hamilton Standard provided an airworthiness approval tag indicating that repair PS960A had been completed and sent the blade back to Atlantic Southeast on August 30th, 1994, and was installed on the accident plane on September 30th. So So less than a year before the accident. Correct me if I got this wrong, but they did more than they were supposed to. Correct. I'll I'll get... They went above and beyond Mm -hmm. the line of duty. Well, I'll explain. Uh, well, clearly not, because it He likes failed. sidestepped f- procedures, so I'll get into that right now. So, the NTSB determined that this treatment of the blade that the technician had performed masked the existence of the crack. So, was the crack already there when he made the thing? Yes. Oh, oh That's, God. That is why it failed the ultrasonic inspection. The technician had sanded the surface, but did not restore the surface to the original surface finish. In other words, he didn't properly polish it. That made the ultrasonic waves disperse around the area and reduce the ultrasonic indications to below 40%, which meant that it was below the level required to be recorded. This failure to polish properly was considered to possibly be due to inadequate training, his automotive background, or long hours. 
Investigators were ultimately unable to determine whether or to what extent these factors contributed, however. Aren't they supposed to put it through another test before it goes out again, though? They did. So because, right, he, didn't, he, because he didn't polish it, it passed. Right. So, so it didn't it work. Didn't find it didn't the crack. find the crack, right. It did not find the crack. Because of the way it was done. Because of the way the work was done. So the unpolished surface basically made all the ultrasonic waves bounce such that he, it passed the test. When interviewed, the technician said he thought it was acceptable to use that PS960A process to blend out unexplained ultrasonic failures, which is true if the bore is shot-peened. But this one was not shot-peened, and he said he knew the difference between shot-peened and not shot-peened. He also stated that he had blended 10 propeller blades that were unshot-peened and had ultrasonic indications but no visible damage. So this was not the only propeller blade he had done this to. The NTSB ascertained from the interview that if the technician had understood what was actually procedure, that PS960A should not be used on unshot peen boards with unexplained ultrasonic indications, he would have rejected the blade. It would not have been returned to the airline. There were a couple more details in the analysis, but we'll go through those in the findings because they're not as explanation heavy. Basically, the first step of the procedure is to only perform the procedure if there is visual damage. And there wasn't. So yeah. he shouldn't have sanded it. He shouldn't have ground it. He should Because it had unexplained ultrasonic inspection, it should have just been rejected flat out. Yeah, because it means there's something wrong within the actual material itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even if you can't see it. Which, fun fact, if you haven't listened to this podcast enough, cracks can sometimes be microscopic. And even if they are... They are very, very dangerous. Yep. This might be beyond our level of knowledge, but if there was not a crack, it didn't pass the inspection of the... The ultrasonic inspection. Ultrasonic inspection. inspection and he did the same process, would it have been okay? If there wasn't a crack. If Even if there wasn't a crack, it should have been rejected because it didn't pass the ultrasonic test and didn't have an explanation why. It does not say whether or not it still would have corroded. Assumedly not, but... This accident in and of itself was the final red flag, you could say, because this was where the investigators went immediately. They knew immediately when they heard that it was a left engine problem. They went straight to the propeller on this airplane. Because of the two previous incidents. Because of the previous incidents, this was the final straw. The investigators knew what was happening. It also helped that a propeller blade was missing. Yeah, I mean, that was a big dead giveaway. They didn't need much more than that. So then why couldn't they fly with just the one engine? Well, it was because it was turned to the side. It created such a drag. The engine was so mangled. Literally, when the prop broke, the remaining torque was so imbalanced that it bent the engine sideways into the wing. Because of that, there's so much aerodynamic drag on the left side of the airplane that it immediately pulled the airplane left and down. Okay. It was actually pretty miraculous that they managed to fly the airplane as long as they did in a somewhat stable state. It really is. Because this airplane was not aerodynamically fit to fly in any way whatsoever. Yikes. So actually, it was really good on the crew. Yeah. They did a pretty good job, and all the things NTS- considered. And the NTSB does say that, that given the circumstances, they did everything they could do. They were not at fault. Yeah, this was definitely not a... Anything like have to do with the crew. Hamilton Standard, this is completely on them. Because yeah, it is. They, they had more than one way to catch this, too. So the first time was having a competent inspector, inspector, right? Which clearly they didn't. But they didn't have the person that signed off on that work. They should have looked at that and went, this hasn't been checked again yet. Nope. So why they returned it to service without that? Thing. The second inspection? Like, no what's idea. The, what's the point of having that second inspection there if you're not going to do it and return it to service anyway? Excuse me. The audacity. Well, we'll get to that at the end. <laughs> After this message. Break it a break. Break. Da, 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 da. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. So I hope you enjoyed that commercial, hopefully about Cheez-Its. Yes, and for those of you listening on Patreon, you didn't enjoy the commercial, which is good for you, unless you enjoy Cheez-Its. <laughs> we we're not sponsored by Cheez-Its, so. Not yet. Not yet. You never know. We need to get I on I don't that. know if they sponsor a <laughs> podcast like us. I don't even know if Cheez-Its sponsors podcasts. I mean, you do get Cheez-Its on flights, Do they so... need to market? I don't know. Can we move on from yeah. this conversation? <laughs> All right, so for findings. What did they find, Nick? They found... The flight crew was trained. The airplane was certified. What? Yep. The flight crew was in good health. FAA certified. All that stuff. You, wait, hold on. You're telling me <laughs> that an FAA certificated pilot was FAA certified to fly FAA certified aircraft? Yeah. Okay. Mind blown. <laughs> just Plot twist. To, just had a double check. Plot, Plot twist. twist. Okay, because you didn't bring that stuff up earlier. Nope. I just wanted to verify. Yes. No, we're... We're, we're good. They, everything was good in that department. For those of you who ask Brendan to be a guest on the podcast, I hope you're happy. <laughs> I, I do apologize <laughs> to the majority of you that, that probably don't, don't want me here. Some, some people probably like it. I know some people like it. They've There's said at it. least one person. They've said it. Anyways. They did find that Atlantic Southeast Airlines maintained the airplane in accordance with applicable federal aviation regulations and company operation specifications. So the airplane was maintained well by the airline itself. Yes. The airline was not at fault for this maintenance nightmare. Yep. The only crime is flying an expensive airplane. Yep. To maintain Very expensive. Airplane. Yeah, by the way, it was $5 million. It cost $5 million the airplane at the time of the accident. Jeez. That was its net worth. In 95, right? In 1995, yes. They were pretty new at the time. They found that after the propeller blade separation, the combination of the resulting loss of left engine thrust, increased drag from a deformed engine nacelle, and the three blades retained in the propeller hub, and added frontal drag from external sheet metal damage, degraded airplane performance, preventing the flight from arresting the airplane's descent or making rapid changes in its direction of flight, making a forced landing necessary. In other words, it was so badly damaged on the left side, they had to land the airplane, they didn't have a choice. It it wasn't really depicted well in the story that I told, but the flight crew was literally using all of their force on the flight controls to try to maintain stability on the airplane. They also had no idea the state of the engine because the captain did not take the time to look over his shoulder and yes. say, hey. He thought it was just some kind of engine fire or, or something. Or flame out or something. Because of the warnings they were getting in the cockpit. But it turns out it was much worse than that, and he didn't realize it until they were... Close to hitting the ground. That he looked over his shoulder and... Yeah. Yep. Is the 120, is it cable? I think it is cable driven, yeah. Okay. Yep. So you actually can feel the... Yeah. They were putting full force on the, the controls trying to hold it back. And he, you might remember, he asked the first officer... Help. To help him. Right. And he, he, he... It wasn't in the story, but I know that he asked him several times to keep helping him and keep holding it. Because he couldn't keep the nose up. So the airplane just kept descending and descending and descending. They found that one of the four blades from the left engine propeller separated in flight because of fatigue crack that originated from multiple corrosion pits in the taper bore surface of the blade spar propagated toward the outside of the blade around both sides of the taper bore, then reached critical size. You know what I don't get? Hmm. It's why they had to use bleach to soak the cork in. To I, put it in there. I, I didn't know. quite understand either. I feel Shouldn't like it should use water. Wouldn't it be the same? Probably some scientist somewhere was like, do it this. Out. Okay, but also thinking about it, like it's somewhat obvious to me that bleach would degrade aluminum. Yeah, it degrades pretty much anything it comes into contact with, except for like porcelain, which is why you use it in the bathroom. Well, we we know that now, but did they know that then? I don't know. I mean, this is 1995. I would hope so. We didn't know the tectonic plates until, what, 30 years ago? Yeah. So. I mean, 
my, my chemistry history isn't that great, but I still feel like we knew as a collective society that chlorine was highly reactive. It is a halogen. I don't know. I just thought it was weird that they used bleach instead of any other thing they could have soaked the actual cork in. I'm sure some of there's a logical explanation. I'm sure. That has a lot of science that I don't understand. Nope. But <laughs> if you want to do your own investigation, though, you could go look up the previous events where the propeller blades failed. It, it was One was in Canada, one was in Brazil. Yep. They both happened in 1994. Have fun. They found that because of the severely degraded aircraft performance following the propeller blade separation, the flight crew's actions were reasonable and appropriate during the attempts to control and maneuver the airplane throughout the accident sequence, and they were not a factor in this accident. Flight crew were good. They found that Hamilton Standards Engineering decision to use the PSA 960A blending repair to remove ultrasonic indications caused by a shot-peened taper bore surface was technically reasonable. On shot-peened surfaces, that was reasonable. What is shot-peened? To me, my brain says pitted, but I don't think that's the same thing. Shot peening, also known as shot blasting, is a cold work process used to finish metal parts to prevent fatigue and stress corrosion failures and prolong product life for the part. In shot peening, small spherical shot bombards the surface of the part to be finished. The shot acts like a peen hammer, dimpling the surface, causing compression stresses under the dimple. As the media continues to strike the part, it forms multiple overlapping dimples throughout the metal surface being treated. The surface compression stress strengthens the metal, ensuring that the finished part will resist fatigue failures, corrosion fatigue, and cracking, and galling and erosion from cavitation. So there you go. It's like shooting it with a shotgun over, over and over again. Okay, I just did some quick research. So shot peening hardens the surface, which is what makes it less susceptible to fatigue. Gotcha. I'm assuming because it probably just dents it to the point of more density, so it's hardened. Effectively, yes. And then you just polish it it off the inside. Yes. And then it would, okay, yeah, it would make it overall harder, so therefore it wouldn't crack or fatigue. So there you go. Science! Science! So as a material gets harder, it becomes more brittle and more ceramic-like. Ceramics do not fatigue. Ah. So you fix the fatigue problem. Unless you drop it. You fix the fatigue Well, because problem, then that's but... not fatigue. That's just dropping. Fracture. Yeah. Yeah, you fix the fatigue problem, but not the potential brittle break. Yes. Now you just got to watch your head around the propeller. Yes. Which is always usually a good <laughs> idea anyways. But, but the whole thing is kind of irrelevant in the <laughs> yes. first place because this particular blade was not shot peened, which is why he should not have done this because that procedure, in case of unexplained ultrasonic inspection, was only allowed on shot peened Right. So this airplane just this blade should have never been back on the airplane. Right. right. They found that the manner in which the unapproved extension of PSA 960A was documented and communicated within Hamilton Standard and the lack of training on the extension created confusion and led to misapplication of the blending repair to unshot peen blades with unexplained ultrasonic indications, allowing the accident blade to be replaced back into service with an existing crack. So saying that it wasn't done correctly because of the way that it was communicated within the company. This procedure was not completed correctly, and therefore this allowed this blade to end up back in service. They found that the sanding marks left by the PSA 960A blending repair did not contribute to the initiation of the fatigue crack in the accident blade. It was already there. It was already there. They knew that because the ultrasonic test failed initially when it came in. They found that the failure to restore the taper bore surface to the original surface finish, as required by PSA 960A, was a factor that caused the reduction of the ultrasonic indication that allowed the blade to pass the final ultrasonic inspection and to be returned to service. He didn't finish it correctly. Another question, Uh right? If he had done... So, I guess it's a two-part question. First one, if it failed the first time but didn't fail the second time, shouldn't that be a a red flag? No. No, because it means that he accomplished treating it. Okay. And if he had polished it correctly, would it have showed the crack? Yes. Probably. It would have failed, okay. yes. I found that the borescope inspection procedure developed and used by Hamilton Standard in June 1994 to inspect returned blades that had re- rejectable ultrasonic indications for evidence of cracks, pits, and corrosion was inadequate and ineffective. The borescopes just weren't good enough. They weren't able to tell what they were looking at, and they couldn't see the cracks properly, and it wasn't a good inspection. It wasn't being done properly anyways. 
They found that the introductory technical training to prepare the new inexperienced workforce at Hamilton Standards Rock Hill Customer Service Center might have been adequate, but the training initially given to technicians who inspected the blades that were returned to Rock Hill as a result of on-wing ultrasonic inspections, including the accident blade, was inadequate to ensure proficiency in the detection of taper bore corrosion or associated cracks. So... This is saying that if a f- problem was found in the field and it was sent to them, the technicians that were literally working on this specific problem didn't have proper training. But the training in general to find fatigue cracks and and these problems was sufficient. They found that if Hamilton Standard had recommended and the FAA had required repetitive ultrasonic inspections for all propellers after shortcomings were recognized and improvements were made in the inspection process, particularly those that had already been inspected, the crack in the accident blade would most likely have been detected. So again, it would have been found. They found that the vibrations caused this blade to eventually crack. The vibrations from operation. Yeah, that, that, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is how science works. Just need a smoother engine. Yes. Smooth. They found that Advisory Circular AC 20-66 does not provide guidelines for adequate margin between a propeller blade's natural frequencies and its potential coincident excitation frequencies over the life of the blade. That's one that I think you could probably explain better. So you guys remember when we were talking about that for... um, Last episode? Yeah. Where the frequencies add together create one big frequency? Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's talking about. And that's eventually what causes the vibrations that make this crack. Which is exactly what happened with the other episode. And break. They found that there is a potential for corrosion to develop in taper bores of affected Hamilton standard propeller blades. Duh. They found that the cloud ceiling precluded the flight crew from being able to see the ground and thus to make a more successful forced landing. Yeah, what's wrong with these pilots? They can't they see through clouds? Yeah, God. God damn. They don't have x-ray vision? How dare they? God. Where's the synthetic vision? Yeah, God. 1995? Jesus. Catch up. <laughs> They found that Hamilton Standard's failure to seek FAA approval of the extension of PSA 960A blending repair hindered the FAA's ability to oversee Hamilton Standard's handling of the taper bore crack and corrosion problem and led to an inadequate documentation of the extension that caused confusion and misapplication of the repair. All of that to say the FAA didn't have oversight on this. No, and they should have. Yes. They found that the timing of the handoff to the Atlanta approach control by the Atlanta center controller was not a factor in the accident. So the handoff between the two air traffic controllers. So now we're leaving the the propeller blade thing, by the way. They found that although the Atlanta approach controller did not issue the AWOS frequency or provide weather information, the controller performed higher priority tasks. And because the flight had to land at the nearest airport regardless of the weather, the failure to provide the CTJ weather information to the flight crew was not a factor in in this accident. The weather wasn't really a factor, though they did say earlier that they think if they not had the cloud problem, they might have had a better chance of landing somewhere safer. Yeah, but the, that was the, the matter of going back down through the clouds, though. That... I mean, they really didn't have much control of this airplane anyways. Yeah. It was pretty lucky they did what they did. They found that if the Atlanta Center had placed a call for emergency services as soon as the pilot requested, which was 10 minutes prior to the accident, personnel would have responded sooner and the rescue efforts might have been more timely and therefore more effective. So the NTSB does believe that this accident might have ended up better in possibly more survivable if emergency crews had been informed when air traffic controllers were informed. Well, if you think about it, the only reason that anyone ended up passing away was because of smoke inhalation. After the fact. After. So if they could have extra people, like firefighters, etc., on the Mm -hmm. scene, when it happened or close to when it happened, getting people out would have been easier. Right. But arguably, too... They still responded pretty quick. Yes, maybe they would have saved a minute or two of time, but they didn't crash at the airport. They still would have had that time in order to get to them. That's true. They wouldn't have been necessarily in the vehicles ready to go, but again, you maybe would have saved one or two minutes at most. Which it could have been the you know, pinpoint of saving a couple people's lives. I mean, yeah. Two minutes is, is. if you think about it, a lot it's of It's a long time. time, yes, it is. <laughs> so... Overall, I think, yeah, they could have done better at uh, notifying emergency personnel. Yep. They found that this accident illustrates the critical information regarding time available to prepare the aircraft for an emergency landing or impact is not being considered and communicated among flight and cabin crew members. 
So this was this is a weird one, but it's talking about the fact that there wasn't this clear communication between the cabin and the cockpit about how long they would have to prepare for an emergency landing and what what kind of timing they're looking at so that the cabin crew knows what to do and what steps to take because she was standing just moments before the accident. She managed to strap herself into the seat like that and was pretty lucky in doing so. I mean, good on her, though, for getting everyone into a brace position. Yes. Because... She had valuable time. They actually had quite a bit of time to handle this situation, which was interesting because most of our accidents happen so quickly. But this one, with just over 10 minutes worth of time to prepare for this accident, meant that that flight attendant actually had time to go row by row and make sure everybody had done their had learned how to do the brace position. Those that had, you know, difficulty doing a brace position, finding a better way for them to do it. She taught people how to open the the emergency exit specifically that were in that row. Um, the one weird thing that she did ask them to do was to pour their drinks into their seat back pockets. That I did not understand in the slightest. I didn't either. She asked them because I think she just didn't think she had time to collect them or something. So she asked them to pour them into the seat back pockets and put the tables up. I mean, I kind of get that. You don't want drinks flying around everywhere, I guess. What I understood more, she's like, everyone take off your glasses. Mm-hmm. Remove sharp objects from your pockets. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, good for you. She was genuinely doing a very, very good job, quite frankly, because she was trying to comfort them, too, and saying, like, hey, look, this airplane is designed to be able to fly with one engine, and we'll be okay. She kept telling them, we'll be okay, but also prepared them for the worst. I don't know. I, and that's I, what made this pretty survivable. I have a problem with people saying it's going to be okay, because in reality, they actually don't know that. Yeah, and but And I realize she's trying to comfort passengers, but there's other ways to comfort than saying we'll be okay. Yes, and I get that, too. I don't know. If you die right away, I mean, you'd never know if it's going to be okay or not. If it was going to be okay. I mean, I guess that's true, but you don't want to give people false hope. I don't know. I That's weird to me, but obviously everyone survived upon impact, so... She also thought it would be okay because she was like, oh, we still have the other engine. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she probably did. She really did. So a little genuinely. bit more on her. The Georgia State Senate passed a resolution honoring her and her actions, but she also never flew again. Yeah, mm. she, is, she is still alive, but the last and final in the spirit of aviation, ha. the last and final finding, they found that there should be standards governing the design of crash axes required to be carried aboard passenger car- carrying aircraft. The axe, yeah, it broke, broke in use. To be like, fair, it probably wasn't designed to smash a window. No, but also... Caliber. So, no, but also... It's designed to smash things much harder than windows. I mean, it's designed to get them out of an emergency. And it didn't. It broke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if mean, that passenger wasn't on the other side... that To be fair, those windows aren't really meant to be broken. So right. I, it can go one of both ways. Should it have broke... Should the axe have actually broken? No. Well, and... Okay, but... so here's the reality. Is that, unfortunately, the Embraer 120 was designed without... a really decent way of having an emergency exit for flight crew. Oh, that's unfortunate. Because the floor buckle jammed the door. They couldn't get out. That's why he had to smash the window. On other aircraft, there is a way to get out of the window. That clearly was not the case here. Yes. Have you seen the Embraer 120 window? It's It's tiny. Well, actually, it's massive. That's why it doesn't open. It's a massive window. So So he... It's like the size of a human. Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's the size of the human. Normally, the windows on airliners are actually much smaller than that window. So, yeah, so he was smashing the front window. It's pretty big. Yeah. All things considered. And they they weren't designed to open either on this oh. airplane, which is a big problem. Anyways. The probable cause, as stated verbatim from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the in-flight fatigue fracture and separation of a propeller blade resulting in distortion of the left engine nacelle, causing excessive drag, loss of wing lift, and reduced directional control of the plane, of the airplane. The fracture was caused by a fatigue crack from multiple corrosion pits that were not discovered by Hamilton Standard because of inadequate and ineffective corporate inspection and repair techniques, training, documentation, and communications. 
Contributing to the accident was Hamilton Standards and the FAA's failure to require recurrent on-wing ultrasonic inspections for the affected propellers. Contributing to the severity of the accident was the overcast cloud ceiling at the accident site. I still think the, adding the weather in there is a little uh, bit... Like, they didn't have There was nothing control. they could do about the that. The airplane was descending whether they liked it or not. Just, they didn't see how close they were to the ground, that's about it. But yeah. they had directional control. They had some directional control. They yes. were following the headings from ATC. So yes, they, could have they were. Found a better spot. Yes, and this is they did land probably true, field. but they did end up in a field still. I mean, they did okay. At least they didn't land on a highway. Yes, <laughs> could have been better actually. It could have. It could have. But main problem was the fire. Everyone he, was alive. They did the best in the situation they were given. Yeah. So there actually aren't a lot of recommendations in here, and there's a reason for that. Because they already knew what happened. And this wasn't the first time. So they didn't feel the need to restate everything about the propeller. Because Hamilton Standard already had these problems. It was already a known thing. And they were already supposed to fix it. And it wasn't done. So they don't bring up much about that. But we'll get there. The NTSB recommended to the FAA to require Hamilton Standard to review and evaluate the adequacy of its tools, training and procedures for performing propeller blend repairs, and ensure that those blend repairs are being performed properly. They recommend reviewing the need to require inspection, buyback, after the completion of work that is performed by uncertificated mechanics at Part 145 repair stations to ensure the satisfactory completion of the assigned tasks. They recommended revising Advisory Circular 20-66 to include the vibratory testing of composite propeller blades that have been previously operated for a substantial number of service hours and composite blades that have been altered to the limits set forth in FAA-approved repair manuals to determine the expected effects of age on propeller vibration and provide guidelines for RPM margin between a propeller blade's natural frequencies and the excitation frequencies associated with propeller operation. That one's really long. But that one, the whole point is to say they need to do a study and test on vibrations on these blades, especially as they age, and make sure that this doesn't cause bigger problems over time. Breakage? Yeah. These propellers were actually ultra common at the time. We're talking 17 million flight hours by 1995. Composite, you know, composite blades of these types were so common that it didn't... You know, it didn't seem like a huge problem, but with some of them starting to age, like this propeller blade, mm, there might have been a problem. They recommended requiring that Hamilton Standard consider long-term atmospheric-induced corrosion effects and amend the Component Maintenance Manual inspection procedure to reflect an appropriate interval that will detect any corrosion within the taper bore. Basic. They recommended requiring Hamilton Standard to review and, if necessary, revise its policies and procedures regarding one internal communication and documentation of engineering decisions, and two, involvement of the design engineering representative and FAA, and to ensure that there is proper communication both internally and with the FAA regarding all significant engineering decisions. It's kind of important. I mean, saying that when they make a decision, when an engineer makes a decision on how the material should be handled and then the repair procedure should be done, making that, not just that documentation, but the training that comes with it standard within the company so that it's not mistook and misunderstood. And then making sure that the FAA also backs it up. Seems pretty straightforward to me. I think that the technicians should be FAA certificated. Because then you don't have to go... I mean, you should always have someone double-checking work, right? Yes. And they're held to an FAA standard. Right. Right. So the fact that... The person wasn't FAA certified, but the inspector was great. But if it doesn't get to the inspector and they approve it anyway, what's the point of having the two-step process? When right. you can have someone who's FAA certified doing the work and someone who's FAA certified Inspecting checking the, the work. work. So you have that double check there and everything is FAA certified so that things like this don't happen. Yeah. Or the FEA, you know, takes that full responsibility of, oh, we didn't train them properly. Yeah. Three more. They recommended including an article in the air traffic bulletin and provide a mandatory formal briefing to all air traffic controllers regarding the necessary importance of notifying crash, fire, and rescue personnel upon a pilot's request for emergency assistance. Ensure that Air Route Traffic Control Center controllers are aware that such a request may require them to notify local emergency personnel. So, 
that whole they didn't notify yeah. emergency services. And they should have. That's what this is all about. They recommended amending Advisory Circular 120-51B for resource management training. A. To include guidance regarding the communication of time management information among flight and cabin crew members during an emergency. This one is a little hairy, though. So it's more of like outside the cockpit CRM because they didn't tell the flight attendant. What kind of timing? Anything. Right. I mean, she thought they were going back to Atlanta, and they didn't end up going back to Atlanta. She didn't know that until they were in a field. To be fair, you're, both pilots are fighting the airplane exactly. all the way to well, the ground. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think they didn't make a big deal out of this. They just felt that maybe some training could help this situation in the future. They definitely don't blame anybody in this no, situation. No, and they specifically said earlier that the flight crew's actions were appropriate Yeah, they in did all regards. Yes, they did everything they could, and there was only one cabin crew member in here, and she was doing her best, and even if they had called her, she might not have even had the opportunity to take the call. I mean, she probably would have tried to get back to them or something, but... Yeah. It, yeah. She was busy trying to assess the situation the whole time and make the best of it. In the air crash investigations episode, one of the people that was interviewed was one of, I think, one of the trauma surgeons in the ER, and he said... Once they wheeled in the flight attendant, she was like, no, don't pay attention to me. Focus on the passengers. Like, she was still taking care of the passengers, even when the accident had occurred and they were all evacuated and in the ER. So, she really cared. Yeah. They recommended evaluating the necessary functions of the aircraft crash acts and provide a technical standard order or other specification for a device that serves the functional requirements of such tools carried aboard aircraft. So making sure, you know, it doesn't break. Yeah, and just maybe having something better than the crash axe. Something different for getting yourself out of a window, for example. Like a window that opens? Or a hatch? Or well, what would you use instead? They make glass breakers that aren't axes. Yeah, but for a cockpit window? Could still work. Could it? Yeah. The little punch? Not the little punch, but they could make the back end of the the axe have a large punch on it. You just smash it with that large punch and it... Breaks. Boom. Yeah. Crack the whole window. Because you created a stress concentration. Yeah, aircraft windows are designed to, like, take a strong hit. Well, they are. Yeah, absolutely. So you need something that could, like, slowly push it out or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. They've probably come up with something for this, but quite frankly, I haven't seen what it is. And I, I don't know an Embraer 120 pilot offhandedly. No. Embraer probably. 120s are pretty outdated these days anyways. Probably just have a steel axe now. I don't know what they used before, but... Yeah. Embraer 120s are going away, but that said, most of the Embraers that are out there still use a pretty similar window configuration. So they still kind of have the same problem, but they probably have a different mechanism for getting out. So the other thing is, this isn't really much of a problem anymore because Hamilton Standard doesn't exist. No, it does not. It says up here on the screen that we have, it went defunct in 1999. 1999. So five years after this accident. Four. Four years after this accident. Math. Yes. Four (laughs) years after this accident, and it was pretty much their downfall. Because you think about it, they had had so many pretty blatant problems in the past. And then to cause two pretty major accidents on... The airplane they supply a majority of their blades for. Not all of them, but the majority of their modern blades for at the time. This was bad. Bad. Really bad on the company. And it didn't survive that. Um, It actually ended up merging into Mm -hmm. Collins Aerospace. Collins is very popular these days. Well, and the whole thing is kind of crazy because Hamilton Standard was formed in 1929. Yeah, they were a very old company and they lasted... What's that? 80 years. So... 70 years? 70 years. Again, math. Math. <laughs> Not good at that part. Math. Um, whenever you go to museums and stuff with propeller planes, you can always see the logo of Hamilton Standard on the propeller blades. On a lot of them, yeah. Um, that being said, on the Wikipedia site for Hamilton Standard, the two listed accidents are this one and the one we covered in episode five. Yep. The big ones. So... Yeah, they messed up. Yeah, not not great, my dudes. Not great. NTSB also recommends you go to Patreon. 
No, they do not. We do not speak on behalf of the NTSB. No, we don't. I speak on behalf of the NTSB. Oh, no, you don't. You don't even One know the day NTSB. I will. If you want to be part of the NTSB. Just for a day, so I can say that. I mean, it would be cool. Then they can fire me. You for... stood outside of their office once, didn't you? I did. During you said riots it was real, in You DC. said it was really boring. It looked like an office building. <laughs> Probably is an office. There was no sign. Not that interesting. No nothing. Not that interesting. Yeah. So that was Atlantic Southeast Airlines. Flight five twenty nine. Thank you for helping me because I never remember any of that information. <laughs> Thanks as always for listening. Thanks, Brendan, for being on. And now I do apologize. Ah. And now we have a listener question to answer. all right let's do it uh can you pull up the question this this question is from as you may guess from us chuckling brendan (laughs) i'm surprised you waited this long i've submitted this a long time ago you submitted it on the 30th of october you guys take forever to answer these you and i discussed so they planned for this to happen whenever you'd be on next yes we did and i Discussed this with you and how I thought it didn't matter. It really, I should not have been here. (laughs) All right, really, to be perfectly honest, it was Christy's idea. So, the question is, why did the chicken cross the road? Do we want to give three different answers? I have something fun for this. I I, I looked this up too. Okay, Okay, so I'm going to give a bullshit question. I'm going to give a standard answer to this and say, to get to the other side, which everyone's going to go, Not satisfied. That's not fun. Oh, I have mine. As a tower would respond, the chicken was instructed to hold short of the road. This road incursion incident was reported in a hazardous chicken road crossing report. Please reemphasize that chickens are required to read back all hold short instructions. <laughs> Possible chicken deviation. Please advise <laughs> <a> copy. <laughs> That's a good aviation one. Here's my response. This chicken got to go fly in a glider. That's fantastic. And it's a real video. It's a real video of a chicken flying in the front seat of a glider looking all confused the whole time. <laughs> what the hell is going Flying on? upside down and all around. He's just like, well, she's st- just like, what in the world am I doing? Is it even strapped in? I, I don't know. I don't know if they could strap it in. Probably didn't really need to be. So that's you, that's pretty much the whole video. You'll be able to see this on the website, so you can watch the chicken fly the glider. But Nick, you didn't uh, answer the question. To go fly a glider. Oh, okay. I believe the uh, article that I got this from, let me see. And what does that say? The The article reads, quote, Why did the chicken cross the road? To fly in a glider, of course. End quote. So, there you go. When I googled chicken cross the road aviation, that was the first thing that came up. <laughs> Start submitting more questions now. All right. Oh God. You'll be the only one. We haven't gotten. We've gotten a comment from David. Yeah. Thank you, David. Seeing how long it takes to reply to these questions, I see why people haven't. Normally, we would answer them on the immediate episode following getting the question. You're you're a special. You were the special case. Yeah. So. So submit your. I am special. Thank you. (laughs) Submit your listener questions. We will answer them more timely. Submit your listener stories for January. Which is now your first aviation adventure. Whether that be a trip, a flight, a jump, a.k.a. David. Yeah. Uh, First something something in aviation. Yeah. First something aviation related. That's January's uh, listener episode theme. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks, y'all. As always. Adios, everyone. Stay safe. Stay Stay healthy. healthy. Wear a mask. Please, God, wear a mask. And we'll catch all of you next week. Wear three masks. (laughs) (laughs) If you feel like you need to. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardLandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardLandingsPodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.